Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this sermon is intended to be a capstone of what we have been learning in the season of Advent. And by that, I mean we have been building a theme in the season of Advent. That theme is this, that God's prophets have rebuked the kings and the priests in Israel for their sins against God's people. It's not just that Israel as a whole sinned in a general way. Their kings and their priests sinned in a specific way. They oppressed the people. I can think of no passage more important to understand in our world than Matthew 2 as it relates to how we might understand God's power at work in the world today. These prophets that God sent spoke of a day when he was going to raise up a righteous king, one of David's sons. And in our reading tonight, Matthew goes to great lengths to highlight this son of God as a son of David. In the birth of Christ, we see Israel in the exact same state as when the prophets prophesied. God's people, when Jesus comes, are harassed and they're helpless. As Jeremiah says, and Jesus later quotes, they are like sheep without a shepherd. There is no one to protect the people. In fact, the very ones who were supposed to protect the people, Israel needs protected against those ones. The false king Herod is himself a microcosm, if you will, a picture of the nation embodied in one man. Herod is a man compromised with Rome for power while defiled by pleasure, greed, and prestige. Herod is a picture. He's a man which rightfully represents the nation. But as soon as the Christ child comes forth into the world, everything about Israel begins to change as God himself begins to act in a way that his disciples, Christ's disciples, would be able to record for us to learn. Everything changes as God wields providence. What do we mean by providence? It is a word that describes not only God's sovereignty, that is his preordained plan, but it's also a word to describe the multitude of factors in God's decision to wield his deity or wield his almighty power. God is not just doing things in response to Herod in this chapter. He has seen the end from the beginning, and Matthew records this in a way that we must see so that we understand how we might be able to trust God ourselves. To that end, I want to look at six ideas tonight, five of them from the passage, and then one idea in application. I want to look before Matthew 2 very briefly at what Matthew does in his genealogy. I want to look at the search that the Magi are on and how Herod attempts to co-opt that search. I want to look at God's hand as he wields his power and gives direction to various people throughout the story. I want to look at the brief, uh, I want to look at the tragic but important slaughter of the innocents and what God might be saying about that. And then finally, Christ's return to Israel and applying all these doctrines. How is it that we should trust in God's providence? You and I face things in our lives which, without a belief in the providence of God, we will be woefully unprepared to weather those storms. 
Brothers and sisters, hear me clearly. You need to trust in the providence of God. Without the providence of God, your faith will shipwreck in tragedy. With a belief in the providence of God, you will actually see a greater aspect of God's grace in the midst of your circumstances. I want to look at the context of Matthew's life quite briefly. Matthew was not just a disciple of Jesus Christ. He himself is a historian. He has collected evidence about the birth of Jesus Christ from Joseph and Mary. That's the only place where Matthew could have read or learned what he wrote in Matthew 2. Matthew was not paying attention to Jesus uh, as he was coming into the world. So Matthew is not just writing things that he saw. He's also writing things that the Spirit is revealing to him as he is writing his gospel. He is being moved by the Holy Spirit to emphasize certain things for his readers that they would believe in the power of God in Christ. He does this not only highlighting his birth, but also his life, his death, and his resurrection. The opening line in Matthew's gospel was penned very carefully. Matthew wrote, this is the book of the genealogy or the coming forth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew goes to great pains to construct a genealogy to emphasize that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of promises in a general sense. He's the fulfillment of promises in a very specific sense and in a very specific lineage, history. God is doing something through Jesus Christ, and Matthew is understanding what God has done, and he's emphasizing that Jesus is not just an abstract fulfillment, but he himself is the specific son of David. Matthew even highlights David's sin in his opening, saying David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This would be extremely embarrassing for Christians as they're reading this gospel if they believed that the coming of Christ was a human effort or that Christ was going to be demonstrated as righteous by lineage instead of righteous by the one who sent him. Matthew has a larger goal in mind. He's willing to risk some Christians being embarrassed by God using a sinful line because he wants to emphasize this is the son of David. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is extremely careful to note how the angel addresses Joseph, Joseph, son of David. In fact, Matthew leaves us a great hint of what his chief intention is in the first chapter. He uses the word David six times. Now, for those of you who don't know biblical numerology, this isn't a numbers game we play, but it's suggestive of something that David's reign was not complete. He wasn't the righteous king. There's a king that has to come forth In Matthew 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Here Matthew is doing something such that he would understand, uh, that we would understand an important difference between Herod and the other kings. Throughout all of the prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, as we've seen somewhat in this year, they begin their prophecies saying, either Jeremiah or Amos, what have you, 
who received the word of the Lord, and here's the quote, in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And instantly, when we read verse 1, we see that Matthew has styled himself intently, imitating the prophets and leaving a great hint of the chief problem. He says, in the days of Herod, the king. What does he omit? He omits the words of Judah. Herod's not the king of Judah. He's the king who is in Judah. He's not the king to come. This contrast is extremely stunning. Herod is not an Israelite. He can't be the king of Judah. He's not of the right line. In fact, he's a descendant of the chief enemy of God's people. If you read the minor prophets, especially the book of Obadiah, you'll see great wars were brought by Edom, Esau's descendants, against the Jews. As they lived in Israel, the the descendants of Esau came and they would pester the people of Israel. For Herod an Idumean, a descendant of Esau, to be reigning on the throne is a great insult. It gets even worse. Through various writers, historians, and extra-biblical sources, we know about Herod's life. In fact, Matthew doesn't record this, and I think on purpose. He doesn't want to glorify the power that Herod was able to wield. We know from the historian Josephus that Herod was proclaimed, quote, king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And if you know your biblical history, this should be a great comedy You can't name them the king of the Jews. You have no power in giving that title. Nevertheless, he stole that title. And when he returned to Palestine, Herod had to overthrow the temporary ruler, his nephew, who he sent to the Romans to execute. We know throughout the rest of Herod's life that that sort of brutality was done over and over again. Herod killed off some of his natural-born sons because he wanted to maintain his reign. In fact, he went so far as to even kill his wife at the hands of his soldiers. Herod is a brutal, horrible king. Matthew's goal, therefore is to show that Israel needs a righteous king, the true son of David, whose reign is going to bless and uphold the nation, not to destroy it. Throughout the rest of the account, Matthew is careful, therefore, to highlight God's amazing power in humbling Herod and demonstrating that he has no power and that God has all power. If you remember the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, God is doing something amazing through Christmas, and it's just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. God is demonstrating that no one can touch the Messiah unless they come through God's plan. As we meet these wise men, they come from the east. They're Gentiles by birth. They are not Jewish, and they come in search of the true king of the Jews. I want you to think about Herod and his title and how he thought of himself. He's the king over the Jews. Listen to the question that they posit to him. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You would think that if I, I was the king, imagine being yourself the king for a second. If you think you were the king of the Jews and you heard that another king of the Jews had been born, you would assume that was your son. 
And yet he didn't just give birth to a son by his wife. Nothing had happened. They're troubled. It says that not only Herod is troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. God is doing an amazing thing through your copy of the scriptures that you have. God is ironically dismantling Herod's claim to legitimacy through these magi. They come and address Herod, and Herod's glory is not even great enough that they know who he is. And not only that, they come and they posit a question to him saying, who is the king of the Jews? In Psalm 2, we know that those who reject God's anointed king, God sits in the throne of the heavens and he laughs at them. You see, the Bible is filled with jokes. If we're in on the secret, the jokes are funny. If we're not in the secret, we always know explaining a joke dismantles it in some way, but I'm going to explain it just so we don't miss it. Matthew is in on this joke. When they ask him the king of the Jews, asking them where the king of the Jews is, the, the situation is much like the emperor has new, no clothes, right? You're asking the king of the Jews where the king of the Jews is, and the irony is lost on most of us, but I don't think Matthew would want us to miss it. Matthew is wanting us to understand that God is laughing at the false king, Herod, because he's a king of the kingdom of man. Matthew is in on this joke because he records what Herod does. It's kind of like in the story of uh, that egg that falls, right? All the king's priests and all the king's scribes didn't see the star arising. And by putting it that way, you're in on on the joke too. The point is, this false emperor has no glory. No one in Israel saw this coming, and Gentiles come and say, hey, what's going on? Uh, We're a little bit late to this party. Can you point us toward the king of the Jews? God is making the Jews jealous with the Gentiles, a theme that later you might remember that Paul brings in. Once the Gentiles have pointed out that the king's there, the answer is then extremely easy. They go exactly where we went yesterday in Micah 5. They told Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Once the Gentiles come and point it out to these Jewish Uh, people, once they know that the king is coming, this answer seems extremely easy. The answer was there all along under Herod's nose, if only he had bothered to ever read or be interested. You see, Herod was never willing to inquire in God's law until it was able to be used to, to keep his throne and authority. In verse 7, we read that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, sent to them in Beth- and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, this is very interesting what Herod is doing. Keep in mind that the kings of Judah never were worshiped. They were paid homage, certainly but they were never worshipped. It is a totally different thing. When Herod attempts to co-opt what these magi are doing, these wise men who've come from the east to find the king, Herod is 
unfortunately putting down all of his cards. If you are wanting a poker metaphor, he's, he's giving up all of his strategy. Here's why. His evil motive and his indifference to actual worship are extremely true. These Gentiles have come from across deserts and mountains at great peril and great expense of their own. And not only have they spent their money in getting there, they've brought worthy things to give once they arrive. And Herod, the king of Judah, can't be bothered to leave Jerusalem and travel just six or so miles away to Bethlehem to go look for himself. You see how the the text brings out all of these wonderful things if we just press in a little bit? This is the glory of what God has given us in his word. He's showing his glory by what he has these people do in this account, in this narrative. This Herod attempts to commandeer their pilgrimage. He attempts to get in on the glory at the last possible second. But we know his worship, so-called worship, is no worship at all. Throughout this whole entire account, God acts to lead and guide his people and blind and frustrate the wicked Herod. He does so in order to show his glory. In verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Think about it in the pictures or the imagery of light and darkness. Herod is in Israel. We know from the prophets it's a land that dwells under spiritual darkness. A star has arisen and come very close to a place only six miles away from him, and no one in Israel caught notice. And yet these magi are being led by this star. Don't you think a star could be seen by Herod and his scribes as well? Matthew doesn't say anything about that, but I would like to suggest that God was doing something with this star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God himself is leading the magi to the child by causing the heavens to point the way. Think about it. We know that stars, huge collections of helium and other gases, giant nuclear reactors that are thousands of light years away from us, we know that stars do not have sentient wills. The star wasn't moving itself, brothers and sisters. God was causing the star to move. He was causing it to be the case that the Magi were able to interpret the direction they were supposed to go. And it was able to be said by Matthew that it rested over or pointed to the house. Now, I don't think this star ever came, enough, came close enough that we could detect its presence with astronomical research and historical information. That's not the point. The point is that if they could see the star, surely Herod should have been able to see the star. As soon as the Magi are about to return, God then warns them not to obey the commands of this false king. I think it's helpful when we read places like Romans 13, in which it says that the civil magistrate is God's servant. We understand that that does not mean complete and total obedience. In fact, the Magi here are one of the chief examples, along with the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, of intentional disobedience and deceiving the deceiver. Herod is trying to deceive them, saying he wants to come and worship when he wants to murder. And so they are deceiving him by having given their word, yeah, we'll come back and tell you, 
they don't come back, nor do they tell him. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The reason that God does this is not only to protect the Messiah, but also to fulfill that which he has foretold. God sends a dream by an angel to warn Joseph not only to save the Messiah, not only to stop Herod's plan, but to actually cause Herod to be doing the bidding of God unintentionally. We saw this two years ago, if you were here with us on Christmas Eve, how in the Gospel of Luke, the governors of Rome are being used to actually bring Joseph and Mary to the very city that they have to go to in order to fulfill God's word. You see, the point is this. God has all the dice. He has all the cards. He knows how to throw every marble. No one in this account is escaping God's plan. In verse 14, we read by Matthew's writing, And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had said, spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Herod here in the slaughter of the innocents attempts to respond with a show of power, and yet he has none. The point that Matthew is trying to drive home to his readers is God has all authority. God is reigning in the midst of the reign of his enemies. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here is a great trial of the Christian faith. It is to be hung up on this question. It is to be hung up on the question, why did these children have to die? Was it God's will that these children die? we might be able to answer that question conditionally. Yes, it was God's will that these children die, not because he wanted them dead, but because he knew what Herod would do and so folded his causality into that scenario that he himself was able to bring a glorious result out of a wicked desire. If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph says as much to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. The providence and sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters, is not in this account nor in any other scripture ever. God will solve all of the problems. God will stop all of the suffering. God will hold you back or prevent you from being touched by affliction. No, it is something much more glorious And that's what he's showing through this account. Herod believes that by slaughtering all these children, even though they are innocent, even though they are not necessarily the one whom the Magi are seeking, that he's going to stop the threat to his kingdom. But as Matthew helps us to understand, he failed before he started. 
Between the recording of the Magi's diversion, that is their escape, they don't go and tell him, and Herod's response, Matthew records in the middle that the family had already left. The family, Jesus, Joseph, Mary, they had all already departed before Herod even issued the command. Remember, God is writing a story through the story of his son. He's saying something bigger than what we just see in a picture of the nativity. As an aside and intentionally out of order, Matthew makes an allusion to the inevitable demise of Herod before Herod ever issues the command. I want you to go back to this because I think it's important to see that this is what God is referring to when he's demonstrating his power and his authority. In verse 15, before Herod finds out that he has been tricked, in verse 15, Matthew records out of order, out of historical order, the death of Herod. That should be to us an amazing, wonderful thing to see in the beauty of the scriptures. The point is that God is saying Herod not only has no power, he cannot stop the end of his reign because the Messiah is coming. Between the Magi's diversion and Herod's response, Matthew shows that the family has slipped away and that Herod's demise is sure and inevitable. Interestingly, Matthew avoids detailing anything about Herod's death, which was heinous and terrible. Not only do we know of Herod's brutality from Josephus, we also know that Herod died an insanely difficult death. In fact, as Josephus records the death of Herod, Josephus makes comments saying that Herod's death was a more pitiable death than anyone remembered. He died in such a horrific way that it caused Josephus to note the brutality had come back upon his own head. Here, I think it's interesting to note that the Bible does not mention the details of Herod's death. You would think that if Matthew knew the details of Herod's death, that he would include some comments about the death of Herod, how God had paid back justice upon someone who had done evil. But Herod, but excuse me, Matthew is extremely careful not to distract from the point. The point is the reign of God, not the wickedness of Herod. In fact, the wickedness of Herod is playing second fiddle, if you will, to the main theme, which is God is doing anything that he wants in this passage. Matthew does not want to distract from his chief purpose, God's power in preserving his anointed one. At the right time, God again directs Joseph through a dream, this time to return. In verse 19, we read, When Herod died, no comment, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. The point that Matthew is making is that Herod could not stop the king from coming forth. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? How is this even remotely a Christmas sermon, you might be asking yourself? 
It has nothing to do with some of the traditional themes. I've intentionally not asked the question, what does the gold, frankincense, and myrrh mean? How many magi were they? Uh, were there? What nation did they come from? Were they really soothsayers or actually believers? None of those actually matter. That's not Matthew's point. He would say something about those things if that was his point. Here is Matthew's point, a point that the first century church and our Chinese brothers and sisters understand much better than us. Matthew's account is highlighting the point of Christmas. God reigns alone, and there is no second. In this account, Christ is seen not only as the fulfillment of vague promises, peace on earth, goodwill to men, but the, result, the fulfillment of specific promises. And every single promise that happens in Matthew 2 was not done by Joseph, Mary, or Jesus acting. Remember, Jesus is a child at this point. They're not intending themselves to fulfill the messianic promises, but rather it is God working through events to bring about the fulfillment of what he spoke long ago. This is why we can be confident that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus was not a self-made Messiah seeking to fulfill what he had read in the Hebrew Scriptures. No, Jesus is the Messiah by the proof of God Almighty alone, wielding authority even against kings who resist his will. This passage is greatly applicable to us, not only in the realm of persecution, but also in the realm of everyday human suffering. God's blinding of Herod and his counselors and his sovereign protection of the anointed king gives us great confidence in the midst of a wicked world. Many Christians, by tradition, consider the innocents who were slaughtered, these innocent children in Bethlehem and in Judea, to be the first martyrs of the Christian church. And indeed, I think that consideration is right. They suffered violence, and we may suffer violence. And the point of Matthew 2 is we shouldn't fear that at all. It is this reason that Matthew is giving these Christians not only to trust in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, but also to trust in the providence of God, not only in general terms, not only that God is bringing about his people, but that God knows everything that is taking place on the earth, and is able to stop or cause to be any plot that he wants. This account in Matthew 2 should not be abused, saying, well, this means that we'll never suffer an evil death. That would be reading the story in a wrong way, because indeed, the children of Bethlehem, they did suffer unjustly. Jesus escaped that unjust murder, but the people in Judea did not. Those families were deeply affected, but God was doing something much, much greater. An account like Matthew 2 should never be read as a promise of God's protection against suffering, but rather for an understanding of God's providence. God will bring about his intended and appointed end, and no king can thwart his plan. No empire can slow him down at all. This is the application of our text today. No matter what tragedy we may face, nothing escapes the eye of our loving Father. 
Anything that touches your life, brothers and sisters, is coming through the filter of Romans 8.28. As Paul tells the Roman Christians, Christians who were sitting at the seat of a wicked empire, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you know that you are called according to God's purpose, it doesn't matter what touches your life. In some way, for God's glory and for his beauty, for his praise and renown in the earth, God is able to take whatever touches your life and turn it around for good. The point of Matthew 2, the point of Christmas is this. Not only can God protect the Messiah, but there was no time in which the Messiah was even in danger. That's the point of Matthew 2. We can trust him. Therefore, as Christians in an increasingly godless society, we must act as salt and light. If we were in Bethlehem and Judea, we ought to have been prophesying against the people coming to murder those children. We must be salty and lighty. We must have a preservative effect. We must call out what darkness is. We have been commanded to proclaim the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ. Every single one of us who is a disciple of Christ are charged to prophesy against the darkness of the world and to call men to the light of Christ. Nevertheless, doing that will cost us. Jesus tells his disciples to count the cost before they presume to be his disciples. And yet at the same time, he gives them an amazing promise. In Luke 21, 16 through 18, as Jesus is sending out his disciples to go out into the world, as he himself is about to go to the cross, he tells them one of the greatest promises and explanations of the sovereignty of God's providence is this. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head of your hair shall perish. The point is that God's sovereign protection of his people transcends bodily death. The disciples who died horrific deaths did so knowing that whatever their persecutions were, whatever their sufferings were, God was as sovereign in Matthew 2 as he was in those very same moments. Jesus himself saw and either permitted or stopped. Nevertheless, none of them perished forever. We can perfectly trust in the Father Though our adversary still rages against God's people today, you and I can trust that only what God has ordained may come to pass. This is the good news. This is why this is actually a wonderful Christmas sermon. It is because of this fact. God has sent his son into this world, and though the kingdoms of men may all join forces arrayed against him, nothing can stop his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son came and you gave him as a gift to die at the right time for the sins of people like Herod, even though Herod did not receive your grace. We do not presume that we are any more righteous than the sinners of old like Herod or or even people who we know in our culture who do wicked things. We freely and fully admit that without your son's coming, We could never rejoice in his coming. That unless he comes and calls your people to repentance, that we cannot come to you. 
And so we thank you that not only did you send your son, but you displayed your power, that your promises will never return void, and that you will accomplish what you purpose. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.